How does an architect end up working on Obamacare? What are the differences between designing with data and physical materials? Why does our government need more designers? I'm Bonku, the host of Design Lab. It's a show where we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today's guest is Sha Huang. He is the COO and co-founder at Nava. It's a super cool company. It's actually a public benefit corporation that works to make government services simple, effective, and accessible. He founded Nava as part of efforts to fix healthcare.gov, but now Nava works on projects across Medicare, Department of Veterans Affairs, and at the state level on large efforts to improve government digital services. Shaw is a self-proclaimed failed architect and accidental entrepreneur. He has worked with clients such as the New York Times, the Harvard Library Lab, CNN, MTV, Flickr, and Adobe. Prior to Nava, Shaw worked at Stamen Design and later co-founded a company that was acquired by Trulia. He has spoken frequently at events including the White House, Datapalooza, Webstock, IEO Festival, and Visualize. Did you know that Design Lab has a newsletter? Find the link in the podcast show notes and subscribe. Every week, we'll deliver you cool stuff to read about design and health. Remember to rate us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for everyone who has done so. We have a five-star rating on both those platforms. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Tell a friend about the show. That's how you, as a listener, can practically support us. Now, my conversation with Shaw. Sha Huang, welcome to Design Lab. So stoked that you're here. So great to be here. My first question is, I'm curious to know how an architect ended up working on Obamacare. I think it's a fascinating story. <laughs> yeah, how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> All the time in the world. Because <laughs> um, you, you studied architecture at Berkeley. Yeah. Is that uh, correct? My, my background is in architecture, and that's originally what I moved to New York to do was to practice architecture. My path during architecture school, I was always kind of working on little coding side projects. I was pretty interested in generative design in the architecture space. And it led me down quite a rabbit hole towards working on data visualization projects, mm. which ended up pulling me out of architecture and actually back to the Bay Area to work at a design and data visualization firm called Stamen Design. That was my first kind of real foray into coding full-time, working as a consultant in the tech space. And it was pretty eye-opening. It was pretty amazing. So bringing a kind of rigorous kind of architecture-trained design lens into a pretty nascent web and tech space. So after that, wait, was was that a little bit of a hard leap? I mean, you went from designing like buildings to yes. then designing with data. You, ch- you just change your design material from like physical things like wood and glass and steel to data, right? Yeah, there was a moment in my first job in New York in architecture where I had spent I think six months working on a conference room. Six months. Yeah, that uh, must have been a kick-ass con- conference room. <laughs> <laughs> there were some nice drawings. I remember it finishing. It 
got constructed, I went to visit the site and I was like, okay, here's the moment I've been waiting for as an architect. This is, you know, when something I've designed has actually been made real for the first time. And I remember walking into the room and feeling nothing. And I realized during that period that, you know, the things, the little websites I was making and the little data visualization projects I was doing on the side actually felt more visceral to me as a material to work with or more kind of creatively satisfying to me than the literal physical material. You know, walking into that conference room that I had designed, that I had worked with, you know, the contractor and the engineers to figure out all the details of walking into that physical room that I had, you know, worked on and I didn't feel anything. Uh, that was supposed to be an important moment for me as an architect. And I didn't feel a connection with the space. So, and that, that was a pretty wild moment to realize that some of the work that I had been doing as side projects, you know, designing little data visualization projects, coding little side websites or mm. freelancing or things like that, that work actually felt more visceral and more tactile to me as a medium to work with. Than, than the work of designing buildings and working in the architecture space. Now, and that's so interesting because it's not like physical. So why, yeah. why do you think it was more rewarding for you to design with data instead of design with physical materials? Yeah, I think, you know, an old architecture professor of mine, uh, Nicholas de talked about architecture as, you know, effectively a leap of faith. Like you are drawing plans, you are making renderings, you are setting intentions for what a space will be, oftentimes working through myriad constraints and challenges and things like that. But the actual lived experience is something that is made by others. Welds, the actual facade, the actual kind of material and kind of matter battles that take place to reckon with what people will actually experience mm -hmm. happens outside of the scope of the architect's role. And obviously they often have oversight responsibilities, legal accountability, that kind of thing. But that distance, I think I didn't feel that when I was working on digital products mm. that, you know, the, the designs or the intentions, if they were written in the CSS or DHTML or whatever language or framework were the actual experience that people were seeing, were the actual kind of lived experience that people were navigating through. And I think that was something that was pretty powerful to me to have that pretty direct connection. Hmm. And in my research, you had mentioned something about tighter feedback loops. Did that influence yeah. this experience of working in this new medium? Yeah. And maybe that's kind of an overarching thing that I've been looking for as a practice within the industry I'm trying to navigate through is, you know, applying that systems lens that, you know, we learned and built up in architecture school, thinking mm. about, you know, the various scales of abstraction from, you know, what the structure of the building is going to be to what the, you know, infrastructure systems or mechanical systems are going to be to how it integrates with the rest of the city how it integrates with the urban environment, you know, all these layers of abstraction, I think have been, that systems lens has been a through line for me in my work. And then the other angle is that feedback loop 
of like how to tightly integrate and how to do work that actually can kind of close the gap between what people's lived experiences are and what decisions are being made about them. Mm. One of your first startups was a company that was acquired by Trulia. And so mm-hmm. anyone who owns a house in the US or have thought about owning houses probably use Trulia. Can you talk about how that company or the work that you did there influence your journey as a designer? Yeah, it was hugely influential. My co-founders during that time, Vaughn and Eric, I met them through living in San Francisco. And at the time I was working at you know this data visualization and design firm, Stamen, we were doing a lot of civic tech or open data type work, looking at exploring data around mm. cities. What's civic tech? So that's a term that I think some people may not know. Uh, yeah. I think civic tech, I define it very broadly, which is you know using some of the tools or practices built within a tech space and mm-hmm. trying to bring them to bear on civic or institutional challenges that the public is facing. Mm-hmm. I think some people talk about civic tech as purely an external kind of actor or role, meaning you know the kind of civic engagement efforts or processing open data that the public is releasing. Some people draw lines between that kind of outside civic tech as outsiders to gov tech as mm-hmm. insiders, like mm-hmm. people who are actually building the institutional systems and frameworks and things like that. But I, I think of both sides of the house as, as civic tech. I think of it as different roles and different relationships within a very broad and deep ecosystem. Got it. Got it. And sorry, I had interrupted you. I'm talking about the Trulia story. Yeah, no worries. Yeah. So I think at Stamen, we had been doing a lot of that work and mapping and visualization for other clients. Mm-hmm. But when we, when Vaughn, Eric, and I met, we started talking about building a company to investigate some of those same flows of information in the urban environment, but applied towards, towards finding homes for mm-hmm. towards finding apartments and things like that. And some of the thesis that we had at that time with Movity was that when you talk about what you like about where you live, you're not saying, oh, I love, it's a two bedroom, two and a half bath. You say it's close to the subway. Mm. It's got great light. It's got great schools. I have a taco place that's open until 2 a.m. around the corner. All these kind of soft things or characteristics of the urban environment that we mm. felt like people were not able to make decisions around. You're right. Yeah. We're not talking about only what's inside the house, but kind of like the spatial environment, the built environment, the surroundings. Yeah. Yeah. So that was part of the thesis of Movity was exploring some of that urban data applied to rental and real estate transactions and truly bought us for that. For that purpose, we ended up becoming the, what was called like the geo team at the time and built a lot of those search frameworks and data integrations at Trulia to be able to look for you know schools that have certain ratings or what districts this home might fall into or what mm. transit this might be nearby or how long my commute might be. Those things were questions that we kind of were able to bring to Trulia and scale up nationwide. It's amazing that you would not even think about buying a house without going to a site like that. 
I mean, I'm not even looking for a house. I browse that site often, <laughs> you know, when I'm, when someone's like, I live here, I was like, oh, let me check out what this place is. And, it's super fascinating. Yeah, it, it is. And, and I'm not even look that the data, I'm not looking for a home, but there's so much rich date, contextual data in there that it serves multi-purposes. And can you talk about how you got plucked from this sort of industry to work on Obamacare? Because I think it's a fascinating story of you and your team who worked on providing healthcare to millions of Americans or giving millions of Americans the ability to pay for healthcare. I mean, I think there should be a documentary about it. It's so cool. <laughs> like, like, how did that happen? Because you weren't working in the government during that time, correct? No, working on healthcare.gov was never part of a plan. <laughs> it was never part of some you know, five-year career roadmap or something like that. Yeah, I think, I mean, it was not intentional, but it has shaped, fundamentally shaped the trajectory of my and everyone else who worked on healthcare.gov's lives. Like, mm -hmm. it's just very easy to see and say that mm -hmm. now with some hindsight, but that wasn't entirely clear when, when that effort first started. When, so in terms of my personal trajectory, I had been working at Trulia for a couple of years after the acquisition. I left Trulia at the beginning of 2013. And, mm -hmm. you know, my personal perspective at that time was like, okay, I've been in San Francisco for five years. I've kind of gone through this pretty wild roller coaster of going through the startup scene, raising money, getting acquired. Mm -hmm. Trulia was going public. So I felt pretty lucky and privileged. And was making a decision to move back to New York. What I wanted to do at the time was, you know, I'm going to go back to making smaller projects, you know, not working on these deep institutional redesigns of nationwide websites, just going to focus on the small stuff for a bit, go back to freelancing. You know, we had former investors asking us whether we would start another company. Mm. Like, not, not interested in starting another company right now. Just going to, you know, relax and <laughs> keep it small, small scale. And this was in uh, 2013? So this was in 2013. I moved back to New York in September of 2013. And then in October of 2013, healthcare.gov launched. So it did not go well. This was a site that was supposed to close the uninsured gap in the US. At the time, I think in the US, about 40 million Americans were uninsured. Mm something like 18% of the population, hmm. of the adult population. I'm going I'm to preface that not going well, I think is an understatement. So, <laughs> right, there's this, there's a stat I read when it officially launched on October 1st, 2013, uh, the site like crashed within like two hours and only six people were able to complete their applications on the first day. Like it was a mess in the beginning. Yeah, in the beginning, I'm forgetting the exact numbers, but over a million, I think one and a half million people tried to access the site in the mm. first 24 hours, and only six people were able to submit an application. Yeah. So it was a huge challenge for the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, for the White House, and for the healthcare.gov team. I mean, this and was like, this was like the biggest thing. I mean, this is like the biggest piece of legislation in the past 50 years. I mean, it was historic. And so there was so much, I remember there was so much 
buildup and we're so excited about this. Yeah, there was a, there's a, I don't know what the language expectations are on this podcast, but. Oh uh, yeah, you could drop F-bombs, vice, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, the, I mean, the former vice president, Vice President Biden at the time, you know, is caught on camera whispering to Obama when he's signing the legislation into effect. He whispers into Obama's ear, you know, this is a big fucking deal. <laughs> like, so that's, uh, you know, now, now our president, uh, yeah, president's uh, kind of quotes on the matter. Yeah, it was a huge change, huge effort with a lot of very important intentions. And I think some of the policy analysts or research or think tanks projected that. I think Obamacare or healthcare.gov needed to enroll at least, I think, 4 million people mm-hmm. in order to, for the policy to be kind of viable, for mm-hmm. it not to just only cover the people who would need that insurance the most. And so that costs would kind of spiral out of control. And, th- and there are probably many people who were hoping it would fail. You know, many, there, yeah. many people across the aisle who did not want this to succeed. I mean, it was the most political issue of the time. Yeah. It was a particularly wild moment that the performance of a website and the, if you look at the legislation of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, you know, it does say like, you know, an internet website will be created. You know, it was crazy to see that a broken website was threatening the viability of a legislative effort. Yeah, There were congressional hearings, there were people holding up iPads with healthcare.gov not loading. Oh my god. There gosh. were screenshots of 404 pages. There was Fox News covering it all the time. Yeah, I'm sure Fox News was having a field day. Yeah. So it was a pretty tense period. Obama tapped Todd Park, who was then mm. the White House CTO, to spearhead a kind of recovery effort. The press kind of talked about it as the tech surge. And Todd pulled in a few folks from within the tech sector to help support that effort. I think some of the early folks were Mikey Dickerson and then a woman named Jeannie Kim. Jeannie Kim was the former, I think, product manager at Google running Google Health. And she was the person that ultimately tapped me and many other folks to join the effort. And I had met Jeannie a few years prior in San Francisco during my time at Trulia. You like literally get an email or a call saying, hey, can you work on this thing that's failing <laughs> right, right, yeah. right now? Like, I, I did, And you're like, sure, why not? I'm not doing anything. I literally got an email that was, you know, something like 11 at night from Jeannie that was like, hey, can you come to Baltimore for a week and help us redesign healthcare.gov? And, you know, I love Jeannie, I, but also I was not expecting that email. I had obviously been <laughs> seeing it in the news. I had very recently moved to New York and was kind of settled into my, you know, freelancer, small project you know, lifestyle. And I forget what I said back to her, but basically was like, you know, is this real? <laughs> <laughs> and then it was like 1130 at night and she emailed right back and went like, yeah, it's real. We can hop on the phone right now if you want to talk about it. Wow. It was because it, it was a crisis moment. Yeah, it was a crisis moment. I think the thing that I ended up doing was I had met Todd Park before through, through various other things. I had heard that he was involved. I was 
texting with my former boss at Stamen Design, Mike Lebersky, who was then the CTO of Code for America. I was saying like, hey, I heard Todd is involved. I heard this stuff is going on. I just got asked, is this a suicide mission? Is this actually going to change things? What's going to go on? You know, is this actually going to have any impact? Is this just kind of set up to fail? Do you know anything? Basically, I was like freaking out to him over text message. And I think Magursky very patiently listened to my paranoias and concerns. And then I think the only thing he said back was, you know, well, could you make it worse? <laughs> uh, and that was kind of the gut check I needed to kind of sit back and say, okay, well, I don't know how I've ended up on the receiving end of this request, but I believe in myself enough to think that I can at least try to help. Mm. And that led me onto an Amtrak down to Baltimore and meeting some of the rest of the team that was gathered there. I love that story. And I want to emphasize how much was at stake here. It wasn't just designing a website. I mean, literally millions of Americans would have lost this ability to get insured for the first time or to have affordable insurance because if this doesn't work, this legislation could have been blocked, right? Like Obamacare would have failed if people cannot have signed up. And for those who don't remember this time, or if you're living in another country and don't understand how freaking messed up and complicated uh, the US healthcare system is, this was really the first time that many Americans could actually get good, affordable insurance, could actually pay for their medical care. Yeah. And something that Mikey Dickerson shared with us during some of those early days has stuck with me a lot and stuck with me all the way through when we were actually launching changes to healthcare.gov, which was, you know, at the time it was something like 40 million Americans were uninsured and would be able to enroll in subsidized low cost health insurance through healthcare.gov. At the same time, about 40,000 Americans every year were dying mm. because of a lack of health insurance mm. or some of the root causes were mm. that they just did not have the safety net that they needed in those moments. And so something that Mikey kind of communicated to us and I've, I've kind of kept with me is that, you know, every thousand people that enroll, that's one life that maybe is kind of saved down the line. And I think that's, you know, when we finally started after the first few weeks or months, being able to ship updates to the website, getting access to the code, doing the kind of what we talk about at Nava is like software archeology, span figuring out, you know, what all happened, what all was connecting to what. And when we started launching some of the updated experiences, that's something I just kept thinking about all the time as we watched people enrolling you know, thousands and thousands, like every thousand people alive, every thousand mm. people. So yeah, I think the scale and the gravity of it just dramatically changed my perspective on what type of work I want to be doing and what type of work was even possible yeah. and what types of problems were really important during this moment. The scale at which you design, I have a hard time wrapping my head around this because you have impacted the medical care of probably tens of millions of Americans. I mean, you have definitely saved more lives than me 
indirectly. I'm at the bedside taking care of one patient at a time, right? There's a nice feedback loop there. You know, if someone has a laceration and I'll, I'll suture it up. Someone gets shot, we'll put a chest tube in, but it's really at an N of one. But how important is your design that it literally impacts millions and millions of people every year? What are some of the like design principles that you and your team employed when making healthcare.gov or revamping or fixing it or the updates? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the, the enormity of the task is exactly why I think some of the most humble principles have been the most meaningful for us. You know, we're not magicians. We're not, you know, pulling, you know, solutions out of thin air that are, you know, unencumbered by constraints or reality. We are trying to, you know, something I've talked about with the team before was we were trying to shrink wrap the law. We were trying to build an experience that was only as complex as the law required and not a single inch more. Hmm. So how to cut away, you know, all of the imagined constraints, all of the soft kind of considerations and try to really figure out, you know, I think a, a metaphor I've thought about before is, you know, the difference between painting on a blank canvas and kind of carving a sculpture from hmm. a piece of stone. You know, in a blank canvas, you're kind of, I don't want to be dismissed, but like it's an additive process, right? Mm -hmm. You're starting from something that doesn't exist. You are trying to create some sort of gesture or composition that is kind of in line with your aspirations. But I think when you're facing a block of marble and you're carving that stone, you're trying to discover what the sculpture is in there. Mm -hmm. And I think that I think about our from a material process standpoint, I think about our work as that chipping away steadily at, you know, accreted material that's built up over years or decades or through mm. complex interpretations of complex requirements to try to find the real and deep kind of true experience underneath. Mm. And I think that's one of the big operating principles is like finding that simplicity through complexity or navigating all these myriad constraints and trying to find the path through of least resistance. I mean, this was probably the most important website ever created, <laughs> like lit literally in, in the US. And I can you share a story of or give us some insight for the audience that, you know, this is just it's not just a website, right? There is a lot of stuff underneath the surface of this is probably the most complicated thing, a system to design. Is there something that you can share that would give some insight into it? Because I don't want listeners to think, oh, they just work yeah. on a website. What's so hard? There's like, I can go on Squarespace and create a website. Yeah. And I think that's, there's a duality there where some aspects of it are incredibly easy and feel very hard, but in reality, they're simple and straightforward and we know how to solve those problems and in other areas they're incredibly challenging and you know one of the texer folks his name is weaver he described it as the fractal he described it as you know the deeper you go the deeper there is in terms of complexity but one thing i think to say up front is you know the healthcare.gov like the folks involved in the tech surge myself included we were just a very small part of a large agency tons of other teams mm -hmm. no one wanted this to fail yeah 
Some people had spent years working on this effort to try to put things in place to have it be successful. So the enormity of the task, I think, is also you know, illustrated by the number of civil servants working behind the scenes as a part of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the number of contractors and things like that. There were, I think, during that first open enrollment, there were something like 17,000 call center representatives across the country. 17,000 like humans answering a phone to answer questions about yeah. Obama. 24-7. Yeah, 24-7. And we talked to some of those folks in our user research. And you know, these were people who took serious pride in their work. In the same way you talk about you know, suturing a wound, like they're helping people in a very mm-hmm. critical time of need to fix some solution, help them navigate the process and things like that. And our actual research with some of the call center representatives helped us drive a lot of the changes we ended up making to the website, for example, mm-hmm. like they were getting, you know, this is a very a rough count, but like, you know, a quarter of their calls were around password resets. Mm. And they were like, you know, I signed up to this job to help people get healthcare, not to like, you know, click reset a password for someone. So we built, you know, ways for people to do that themselves Mm. so that it would lessen the load on the call center. So folks could not have long wait times or be be helped faster. I want to shift gears and talk yep. about the company that you started. So your client, one of your main clients is still one of the largest organizations in the world, the US government. Tell us yep. the type of work that you're doing with your with Nava. Yeah, I think it, I mean, it directly grows out of some of the experiences we had on healthcare.gov back in the day. You know, some of the question that arose for us was how did the US government end up in this position with all of the, you know, talent with all of the care, with all of the intentions of civil servants and technologists and things like that. How do we get into this moment? What were the structural things that were challenging? And at the time, there were efforts after healthcare.gov of creating internal teams at the federal level, mm-hmm. like ATNF and USDS, to start to tackle some of those efforts from the inside. But we also felt like if there wasn't any market pressure on the kind of government contractor ecosystem or vendor ecosystem to raise their standards or kind of up their game, that we would continue to have these systemic failures and structural failures like healthcare.gov, which we, you know, we're seeing were were happening in other agencies at the state level, at the local level, all, all over the place with maybe less fanfare than than healthcare.gov. So that that kind of observation led us to starting a company, Nava, uh, starting Nava as a public benefit corporation to bake in our mission into the governance structure of the organization and led us to try to have a structural impact on the kind of market that had produced some pretty pretty tragic outcomes for the mm. public and for the agencies. I have like a thousand more questions, but we're, we're running out of time. Uh, maybe, maybe a couple more here. So we, in our conversation before, I'm, I'm Korean, you're Chinese. How do you explain to your Chinese parents, like what you do? Like, do they understand the type of work that you do? Cause my parents would not be able to understand this at all. 
Well, one thing that's helped actually in recent years is, you know, Navanel works across federal, state, and local governments in the U.S. Our focus is on programs that support or serve underserved populations or vulnerable populations. And one program that we've been working with over the last few years is Medicare. So working on, you know, improvements to Medicare data systems, Medicare claims and payments processing systems, and also, you know, experiences for people on Medicare to navigate their own benefits, to get notices about prescription changes or things like that. And my parents are on Medicare. So that's actually made it a lot more easy to talk about because (laughs) now actually some of the users of things that Nava is supporting because before it was, you know, it's like, okay, Shah is doing some tech thing, but (laughs) why why can't he just make the next Facebook? Why, (laughs) Why hasn't he invented the next one yet? And now it's, you know, okay, we have seen some changes on Medicare.gov and they were, you know, in many ways, you know, produced or influenced or kind of recommended by staff on the Nava side who've been mm. working on these programs now for years. And so that's been, I think, a help parent legibility. Uh, <laughs> I'm curious to know from your background on this pandemic here. And, you know, one thing the pandemic has revealed is that our public health system is so underfunded. It's a patchwork. Our healthcare system was never designed to respond to a pandemic. And because you've had the experience of designing at scale, were there some things that you wish could have been there or like some easy things of like, oh, well, there should have been a website that Americans could have logged on to and figured out, you know, what the COVID latest COVID uh, restrictions were, or you know, when to get a vaccine, when not to get a vaccine. Because there was so much misinformation, disinformation. It was very confusing, and it still is for a lot of Americans. It, was there something that should have been created that do you think would have helped us? That's a great question. I think you know it, it has been an interesting thing to have gone from healthcare.gov during that particularly you know, visible crisis moment to building an organization that's trying to work on some of these institutional challenges, but that mainly these institutional challenges are a little bit obscured from view, right? Mm-hmm. You know, folks are challenges that folks on Medicaid are facing, you know, insurance for low-income households or SNAP, like food stamps. Those challenges are not always in the news. They're not always, you know, quote unquote, like sexy problems. They're not sexy challenges. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so they're so vital to public health. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's where the pandemic has really kind of pulled the curtain off of the state of our infrastructure and institutions today, but mainly for a middle class that did not need to interact or engage with these so much before. You know, for folks who've been on Medicaid or SNAP, for folks who've been navigating these things for years, the, none of this is new information, right? Mm-hmm. That that some of these institutions have been unable to respond or adapt to changing legislative or technical environments. But I think that the pandemic kind of made it everyone's problem. And I think the opportunities, you know, were, were just incredibly abundant, right? Mm-hmm. Like you think about how 
every one of us in some way had to kind of be our own little CDC or be our yeah. own little HHS or yeah. be our own little like health and governance kind of thing. And, you know, when vaccines were rolling out, figuring out, you know, who had what, where, which, you know, booking site to use and things like that, who had which appointments, it was a very, very fractured experience. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think some of the deep infrastructure work that I would have loved, you know, if, if that could have existed where some of these systems were already talking to each other, mm. some of this infrastructure to deploy changes really quickly on the mm. technical side existed, then I think we could have better kind of published what, what might have helped clarify things or help kind of disseminate information in a more consistent way yeah. or, you know, or distribute things like vaccines or tests in a more kind of consistent or legible way. But instead, I think because some of that basic foundations weren't there, then every state had to fend for themselves. Every yeah. county and local government had to fend for themselves. You know, then sometimes you know big pharmacy chains were leaned on instead of, you know, instead of the government or things like that. So it, it became a very fractured and fragmented experience. I think to everyone's detriment. Mm. Well, I hope the U.S. government will hire you and your team for the next pandemic and to avoid <laughs> some of these mistakes. And really thank you for making Obamacare beautiful and creating the most important website probably in the history of the U.S. and giving millions of Americans, making it easier for them to get insurance. It makes all of our lives easier. So I am so appreciative that you came on the show. I've been dying to talk to you. Thanks, Shah. Thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Shaw. You can find him on social media, on Twitter and Instagram. He has a unique handle, SHA four times in a row. So again, SHA and type that four times in a row. You can reach out to me on social media, on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U, on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.